The racism of recent events in our nation appalls all Christians everywhere. So I have a question. What do we do about it? Well, there's a few options available for us. One is we can stare at our TV or our computer screens and we can start talking to our friends and talking about how evil those people are. We'll agree with each other and everybody will be happy. Another thing that we could do about all the stuff is we can cover up from head to toe and we can go and start beating people up because they're different from us and we don't like them. We don't like the way they look or smell or whatever it is. Or a third option that we as the body of Christ can do is to get deliberately out of our comfort zone and seek to be in the lives of those around us, showing them the love of Christ. Showing them that we are willing to sacrifice for the good of those Jesus puts near us. And as we're doing this, then when opportunities arise and non-Christians will be willing and able to hear what we actually stand for as opposed to hearing the farce that they hear on the media all around us. Now some of you yesterday joined me in making this third option true. You joined us for the 14th Serve Santa Maria, where we went to various parts around this community, and we showed Santa Maria, California, that we believe that church belongs outside of these four walls. By loving, not by screaming, we actually make our point louder and clearer that love and not violence is the answer. If, for example, you have an opportunity to talk to a stranger about the enormous complexities that is racism, first of all, you better have had time talking to those who have experienced racism and then you will also need a relationship that has been built and marked by sacrificial labor with them so that you have time to get past that 30-second soundbite that won't even begin to scratch the surface of this cancer on the American soul. Which brings me to another question. Is personal holiness is righteousness to be defined primarily by what we don't do or is holiness to be defined by what we in fact do is godliness primarily something negative or something positive well i mean as soon as you put the question in this way the answer is obvious godliness is about who we are as reflected in what we do and especially by what we stand for godliness is defined by our love for god and for those nearest us one author puts it this way god does not respond to our prayers god responds to us to our whole life. What we say to Him cannot be separated from what we think, what we feel, and what we do. Which is why last week we defined the phrase, the fear of the Lord, 
as living for an audience of one. We emphasize that all we do and don't do should be done in light of the fact that you always stand before the king of the universe. And because you and I have this enormous opportunity, we have this ready access to the throne of the King of Grace, you and I should live our lives speaking to God about people and speaking to people about God. My friends, what you and I make our life to be about will determine our level of personal holiness. And one of the windows into your own soul through which you can see and recognize your level of righteousness is how and why you pray. Now, fortunately for us, Paul gives us a guideline that you and I can use as we grow in holiness. It's found right here in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Okay, as we get here, let's start with the obvious. Paul wants us to be clear in how we speak to God, and he wants us to be clear in how we speak to others. Specifically, Paul is talking about how we pray. So let's begin with the obvious. What is prayer? Well, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, thanks for the definition from the dictionary, Greg. But here's the point. Yes, and that turns out to be a pretty good definition. And if you start with it in shaping how you think about prayer, it will shape how, in fact, you pray. Now, of course, there are in general two different forms or kinds of prayer. There's formal prayer and there's informal prayer. There is the planned prayer where you separate yourself from the daily world around you and you in- intentionally spend time alone with the personal creator God of the universe. And then there are informal prayers where you just spontaneously erupt in prayer because of need or because of gratitude or simply because you're in awe of the God who created hills of oak trees. Now formal prayer is disciplined. You need to keep your mind from wandering. And this is something you need to work at because you need to strengthen those prayer muscles in order to do it with ease. Formal prayers are done at regular times. You need to set time aside to pray. Not because you'll be a bad Christian if you don't, but because you're a human being. And if we don't establish good habits, then we will, by definition, establish bad habits. 
Formal prayers often use lists. Sometimes we even use written out prayers that help us stay focused. Now, informal prayers, on the other hand, are spontaneous. For me, this is easy. I love spontaneous prayers. I'll pray for anyone, anywhere, anywhen, no sweat. In fact, I was with a former pastor of mine, and back in the day, he used to do door-to-door evangelism. Anybody remember that? Yes. So we were knocking on this door one time, and a lady answered, and she said immediately, I'm Jehovah Witness, and I won't listen to anybody pray in anybody's name other than Jehovah. Pastor Mark didn't even beat an eyelash. I'll pray in Jehovah's name. And she was so stunned, she let him pray for him. It was great. I, I, I'm not sure what she thought about all that, but pray. Don't miss these opportunities for informal prayers. When someone tells you that they need prayer about anything, pray for them right now. Because there is no better time to go before the throne of grace than right now. And both prayers are necessary. Both are important. Both exercise different prayer muscles that we need strengthened. It's kind of like a cross training. But this cross is infinitely more important. And while you're at the cross, speak to God about people. And speak to people about God. Now, Prayer is a means of grace. That's a phrase that's been thrown around a lot and can be confusing. So let me explain. Prayer is one of the means that God uses to pour grace into us. And prayer is an evidence that God is already doing that pouring into your life. In fact, when you pray, rightly understood, when you pray, that in itself is a demonstration that God is gracing you. Kind of like a feedback loop here. Prayer is evidence of God's grace. The fact that God is already blessing you. And prayer is also making you a blessing to others. It is a means of God doing what He wants to do through you into the lives of those who are around you. And when rightly understood and engaged in, now notice that's an if, you have to actually be willing to pray. When rightly understood and engaged in, prayer is a positive feedback loop that pours in blessing into you so that this blessing is then poured out into others. We are blessed so that we're a blessing. And prayer amplifies this grace. To begin with, God must be moving. God must be working in you. And prayer is an evidence of that. He must give you the power to accomplish kingdom purposes. Namely, in this case, praying. And then, prayer becomes a means of grace. It is a channel through which God blesses the people that you are praying for. Prayer is God blessing you so that you can be a blessing to others. Now, I'll give you a really easy example. Imagine that you want to avail yourself of electricity so that you can light your lamp. So the means of doing this is you take your cord and you plug it in to the outlet in the wall. 
if you wish to avail yourself of God's power to accomplish kingdom purposes, like, for example, someone that you love coming to Christ, you pray. So if you wish that people that you love are saved, and how many of us don't have someone that we love who is not saved, there is no other means so clear and so available as prayer. Evangelism, apologetics, service outreach, these are all absolutely necessary and you must engage in them. Because godliness is seen as what you, in fact, do. And listen, this is a tricky point, so you got to listen carefully. Prayer is the backbone that makes these other things like evangelism and apologetics and service outreach stand. The defining feature of Christianity is trust. Because only faith, only trust, only confidence in God's promises can save or avail anything. Prayer then is absolutely central. Prayer is the way that you show God that you are desperate. And God loves a desperate soul. He loves it when you come to Him because He is the only person who can meet the need that you desperately have. So, let's break our passage apart. Verse 2 of Colossians 4. Paul writes, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I might make it clear which is how I ought to speak. What does Paul command us in these verses? What is he saying? He says, pray steadfastly with thanksgiving. And then he says, pray watchfully with thanksgiving. In other words, as you pray regularly and as you pray intentionally, make thanksgiving central. And while you're at it, whatever you're at, pray. And Paul uses this with thanksgiving, this phrase, in such a way that the original readers would have understood that it contained primary importance. It was what Paul was getting at. And furthermore, as we've gone through Colossians, we're, we're almost done. Next week we'll be done. Pastor Benji will be back on Friday, and I'm preaching the conclusion of Colossians next week, and then the following week he'll be back preaching again. But as we've gone through Colossians... We have seen many times how central thanksgiving, giving thanks to the Father, is to everything that Paul says. And this faith, this trusting the promises of God for you in Christ, means, among other things, that you can pray and you can leave your requests before the throne of grace. And you can thank Him now for the outcome, whatever it is. So as I said a few minutes ago, prayer is the backbone of all our efforts to see the kingdom of God expand, especially to the people that God has given us to love. Thanksgiving is then the backbone of prayer. Because if you and I fail to recognize that everything we have is a gift, 
then you're just going to continue to make a list of demands that goes on and on and on. And the longer your list of demands gets, the more fearful you become. And it's true, isn't it? We can become fearful. Fear is a prayer killer. Especially when you're praying for those that you love. Listen to your fears. Oh, they're so, they're so hard. Their hearts are so hard. The, the gospel will never be able to penetrate them. Nothing can save them. My friends, there is hardly any more blasphemous words than those. If God can save my father's son, he can save anyone. But you're afraid, aren't you? You're afraid that you won't know how to answer their questions. You're afraid that you won't have the right testimony, whatever that means. You're afraid, let's face it, of rejection. Prayer to the God of the universe, to the King of kings, and the President of presidents is mighty to save. And He can do it. So pray. Listen again to this fear-killing promise. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. The author to Hebrews says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For He has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So that we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do? Do to me. My friends, if you live for an audience of one, if you fear the Lord, you have nothing else to fear. It has well been said, those who kneel before the Lord stand before anyone. So memorize Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. This was one of the first verses I memorized. And when I am afraid... I bring this back to mind. If I am actively banking my attitudes and actions on Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, I know I don't need to be afraid. If you bank your attitudes and actions based on Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, you too will know you don't need to be afraid. Now, I love how Peter also views this relationship between hope and fear and prayer exactly like Paul does. Look at 1 Peter 5. He writes, Humble yourselves. In other words, pray. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Now, Watchful in the Greek is a fun word. Gregorio. Gregory, I am watchful. It means to stand ever ready. And the early church came to associate it with prayer. And so they might say to each other, stand watchful, brothers. In other words, they were saying, pray for me. I need prayer. But then you have to ask the next question. What are we to pray about? Are we to pray for Aunt Matilda's sore toe? Well, sure. 
but it would be more significant if you used your auntie's medical emergency to draw herself to God, where you recognized that God is the one who brings healing in the toe and in the soul. But prayer gets even more specific than that. He says that we should pray so that we can speak to men about God better. Paul defines this. He says he wants to declare the mystery of Christ clearly, and he wants to speak this mystery of Christ fearlessly. He notes the fact that he is in prison because of this exact thing. So, okay, then what is this mystery that Paul is talking about? What is he mentioning? Again, the answer is found in context. In this case, it's in Colossians 1, where Paul says, To them, his saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. My friends, it's not mysterious. This mystery is that Christ is in you. You those of you who have trusted the promises of God for you in Christ, have become a residence for the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Jews can't believe it. Gentiles weren't expecting it. How on earth did this happen? That is the mystery. And Gentiles and Jews both can be lived in by the King of kings and Lord of lords. And now that you are in Christ and He is in you, you are a part of this feedback of grace that we described earlier. Prayer, remember, is something that Jesus gives you grace to do. Prayer is evidence that God is in fact gracing you. Time out for a second. Do you ever say, Lord, I want to know that you're working in me. You know what the surest way you can find that out is? Start praying. Right where you're at. Just decide that you're going to start praying. And if you do, then that is evidence in and of itself that God is in fact working in you. Prayer is evidence that God is gracing you. And this is the first half of this prayer grace feedback. Jesus empowers you to accomplish kingdom purposes, which in this case is the act of praying. Now the second side of this feedback loop is the one where prayer is the mean by which God gives grace to others. God blesses you, in this case as I said, with the act of praying, so that you can be a blessing to others. God graces you and those you pray for because you pray. And it just feeds itself and amplifies it as you are willing to pray. Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians 1.11. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. It's simple, folks. It's not complicated. You want a hole, you use a drill. You want a nail, you use a hammer. You want to go somewhere, you use a car. You want a loved one's soul saved? Pray. Speak to God about people and speak to people about God. But now I want to switch gears and I want to answer one of the objections 
that Christians most often have about prayer. Why should I pray when God already knows what I need and is wise enough to give me what I need before I ask? C.S. Lewis answered this question in a very short interchange between a young girl and a horse in his novel, The Magician's Nephew. The girl asked, Wouldn't he know without being asked, said Polly? I've no doubt he would, said the horse, still with mouth full. But I have a sort of idea that he likes to be asked. Your God wants to be in a relationship with you. Your God wants to be your friend. So ask him. Now you must pray because God commands you to pray. And more importantly, you must pray in spite of your so-called intellectual objections because he's your friend. And friends trust each other. The psalmist writes, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Trouble is, we're not often in trouble. We try to use a wartime radio to order room service. Prayer is supposed to be a means of calling in the armies of heaven to deliver us while we're in a battle for the kingdom, but we use it because we want extra pillows. And the second problem is the opposite of that. We try to use prayer as room service, or we simply forsake prayer altogether. We don't pray. My friends, it is also true. God does not show Himself to be a miraculous provider because we don't depend upon Him to provide miracles. This passage that we're looking at today is a wartime passage. And you may not have noticed, but we are at war. I'm not talking about the Antifa KKK riots. I'm talking about something much deeper than that. I'm talking about the war for the soul in you. Will you cower in fear from those who can kill the body but do no more? Or will you kneel before God so you can stand before anyone? If you win that war, you will be God's weapon of love to win those fascist hearts. Or should I say, to win those sinful hearts of all those that Jesus puts near you. Speak to God about people and speak to people about God. Now so far we've only approached the first half of this equation. Speaking to God about people. We have another half. And that's what we find in Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Paul says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each one. You and I are to walk in such a way that we are wise towards those outside. How will you live your life? So live in such a way that you are neither thoughtless nor self-centered. So think So work through in your mind and your heart so that what you do 
And the attitudes that you have, non-Christians will see, wow, this person understands how life works. And much of what we're talking about here is related to this idea of being gracious in your speech. So again, another question. What does Paul mean when he says that our speech should be seasoned with salt? Well, go to the context. And Paul puts three concerns here before us. He's talking about wisdom, he's talking about grace, and he's talking about having an appropriate answer to whatever the issue is at hand. And so whatever salt means in this context, it must relate to these three concerns. Now, there is no generic appropriate answer for every situation. The appropriateness must be determined by whatever situation we are in. And this is where salt comes in. And the salt here, the grace here, is how we flavor what we say. Grace, as I have sought to emphasize throughout Colossians, is power to accomplish kingdom purposes. And forgiveness is certainly a kingdom purpose, no doubt. But so is prayer. So is your conversation with your non-Christian neighbor. So is your ability to sprinkle salt into your conversation points that will resonate into the hearts of those with whom you speak. Salting your speech. Or as a friend of mine once said, drop spiritual time bombs. Donna's sister every year gets together with a bunch of her college uh, friends and they go camping somewhere. Well, several years ago they went camping up here at Gaviota and so we went and spent Saturday afternoon with them. We had dinner and, and then went home afterwards. And so I was in a conversation with one of Michelle's friends and this particular woman was Jewish and they had just celebrated Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. It's the high holy day of Judaism. And so I asked her, I said, so what did you do on Yom Kippur? Oh, well, we chanted, we read scripture, and we ate. I thought, well, you're a good Baptist then. <laughs> and so I said to her, well, there was no Kippur. There was no atonement. I mean, people, you can chant and read scripture, and eat all day long, but it doesn't take care of your sin. You need atonement for that. You need the cross for that. Let me tell you something about salt. Let me tell you something about God the Spirit. If I know God the Spirit at all, I believe at some point she had those words ring in her ears. There's no Kippur. There's no atonement. Now what she did with that thought is between her and Jesus. You see, I don't have to feel like I have to win every argument. Because if I'm after winning an argument, I'm going to lose the person. Far more important is that you season your speech with grace like you season your tri-tip with salt. 
if you can plant a spiritual time bomb, if you can grace your speech like salt, the Spirit can later use it to greater effect than you can. And this happens not because you think of some witty responses ahead of time. It happens because you pray. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. That's true. But you can feed him grace, salt, ground in the mill of prayer. Which brings me to the most important verse about prayer in the Bible. 1 Peter 4.7 The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. I end with this verse because it ends with the hope that will cure our fear-killing prayer and because it mirrors how Paul ends. What's the worst thing that can happen to you when you speak to your friends about Jesus? Let's, let's call whatever that is the end of the world as we know it. Fair enough. Well, my friends, the end of the world is coming. And it is closer than it was yesterday. That means far worse than whatever relational damage happens because you share the good news of Jesus Christ in a loving and truthful way is the damage of their soul being on the line. Therefore, for this reason, because this is true, be clear-minded Don't let your mind get wrapped up with unnecessary stuff. Don't let fear or prayerlessness get in the way of you praying for those who are near you who need Jesus. Therefore, for this reason, because this is true, be self-controlled. Don't let your ambitions overstep your reason. Don't let your selfishness overstep your love for the person Jesus gave you to love so that you can pray for them. Evidently, Peter... And Paul and Jesus all believe that what God can do for a hopeless situation, evangelistically speaking, is better than what you can do. Therefore, speak to God about people and speak to people about God.